0: We're in Philippians, it's not an endless sermon, or a series of sermons. <laughs> we start chapter 4 today, we're moving in for the, the final push, so it's been less than a year, it's all good. Uh, today we're only going to do uh, verses 1 through 3, and sort of, they can seem a little disconnected thanks to like headings in the scriptures, so, well, in translations. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and crown, stand thus, stand firm thus, in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat you, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Father, thank you that this was written for our instruction, that we might endure and through the encouragement of the Scriptures have hope. As the God of endurance and encouragement grant that we would see Jesus, the one in whom we hope, through the Scriptures this morning that the Spirit would enable us to trust in Him as He is presented to us in the Scriptures. In this case, the God of peace. Amen. At the beginning of the uh, movie that made a couple of careers, Platoon, Charlie Sheen plays Private Taylor as he steps off a plane in Vietnam. He knows that he's uh, in for conflict because, of course, America is at war with the Viet Cong. But what he doesn't realize is that he's going to step into a second conflict, the conflict that is just as deadly by the end of the film. That is the conflict that exists between Staff Sergeant Barnes, who is the grizzled old veteran with the horrible scar upon his face, who's the hard case, whose goal is to win the war because he's an old-time soldier, and Sergeant Elias, who seems more like the hip young guy whose job it is to get everyone else home. They seem to have conflicting viewpoints as to what they're supposed to be doing there, and it plays out through the course of the movie, and you realize rather quickly that these two men are, in a sense, fighting for the soul of Private Taylor and every other man in that particular platoon. There were two wars that they were fighting. One was with the common enemy, and the other was with each other. And I think that is a firm, an apt illustration of what we see, in a sense, going on here in the life of the church in Philippi. And so there's that question that I think Paul is answering for us today. How are we to face the conflicts without as well as within? Within. These are two important questions, and Paul addresses both of these questions. Paul concludes his discussion of what I've called gospel discipleship, Uh, As he began, not only did he start with that idea of live as good citizens, which we talked a bit about last week in gospel discipleship, but he also commanded them in verse 27 of chapter 1 to stand firm, to stand together for the gospel, as Ted Powers reminded us a couple of Sundays ago. And he says again, therefore, in light of that kind of stuff, in light of all of that, stand firm thus in the Lord. This, of course, is a concept that was familiar to these many of whom were former soldiers. They were familiar with the idea of the phalanx, of, of that, that, that formation that they would fight in, and, a, and the way in which they would move together in unison and they would their shields would be locked together, so to speak, to provide adequate defense from the enemy. And it was that particular technique that enabled the Roman Empire to basically conquer the known world. And so Paul wants them to keep that in mind. Because he has a, the, the conquering of the world through the gospel in mind here. And he recognizes that there's going to be opposition from without the church, outside of the church, and they were to persevere together as a unit, as a church, as a group of people facing pressure from both Gentiles and what Paul has called enemies of the cross. He's not calling them to stand each of them firm, but he's calling them to stand together firm they could stand firm precisely because of the grace that jesus christ had given them the grace that comes from the gospel the grace that is revealed in ephesians 5 when paul talks to another group of christians about the full armor of the lord that they were intended to put on he could have said the same thing here, and I'm surprised he didn't. But that is how they stand. They are all to take up the shield of faith. They're all to have the belt of truth. They're all to wear the breastplate of righteousness. They're intended to wear the helmet of salvation, to have their the, the, the feet of, adorned in the gospel and to carry the sword of the Spirit. gospel preparation for the conflict that they would endure uh, with unbelievers. Not literal armor, but spiritual armor. Because it's not a literal battle, it is a spiritual battle. Not only can they stand firm because of the grace that we ha- they have in Jesus Christ, but I want to remind us, we can stand firm and the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus because we face similar foes. We also live in a culture like theirs uh, that is not welcoming of Christianity. We live in a culture like theirs, okay? Uh, don't think that we're in a, in a unique situation, but we live in a culture that not only despises the exclusivity of salvation in Jesus Christ, but also despises the morality that God calls his people to live by. And so we face opposition. It's not an opposition that we shoot with guns or blow up with bombs. It's an opposition we seek to win by love and by truth. But we must wear the armor of the Lord and be strong in his power, just as Paul told the Ephesians. Jesus equips us and prepares us to fight in this battle against the world, against the devil, and against heretics. We're all intended to play a part in the fight. Paul isn't saying, leave it to the professionals, leave it to the elite, leave it to the mature, but he was calling them as a church to stand united, to stand together, to walk in step, and to move together in order to claim this battle to continue to proclaim together in the Lord they were to proclaim the exclusivity as well as the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ in his work for salvation in other words Jesus is the only mediator between man and god that Jesus is the only savior for sin that his sacrifice his death on the cross is the only payment to take away the guilt and condemnation that disobedience and sin bring, that his resurrection is the only way that we can have newness of life, that we are to proclaim these things boldly and without apology. We are to fight as those who have indeed been given heavenly citizenship, not people like these Roman uh, citizens of Philippi who earned their citizenship, but we recognize that ours has been graciously given to us because of Christ. We have been pardoned. We have been declared to be righteous in God's sight and declared to be citizens of heaven. And so they're only going to stand firm in the Lord if they begin to practice what Paul has been teaching them about this gospel discipleship but not only are they heavenly citizens but we see they're also adopted uh, there's this explosion of affection that Paul has at the very beginning of this my beloved brothers whom i long for my joy and crown and then he kind of ends that with my beloved he kind of kind of bookcases everything with uh, my beloved His affection for these people gushes out of himself. They're not just accepted by Jesus, they're also accepted by Paul. The, The deep affection that he has for the Philippian believers pales in comparison to the deeper affection Jesus has for the Philippian church. So they're not only... Paul's joy and crown, but they're also Jesus' joy and crown. They're part of the joy that Jesus saw before him as he thought nothing or thought little of the cross and went to his death. Jesus rejoices over the church, singing songs of joy and salvation over his church. They're part of his bride, his beloved. And they fight that way. As people who are deeply loved. I was watching Daredevil. I wasn't planning on saying this. And Daredevil has kind of met his match. There's someone who seems to be faster than him and stronger than him. But I thought to myself watching this Daredevil fights for love, this other man fights for hate. And I knew Daredevil would prevail. And I have that same confidence about the Philippian church. When they fight for love, their fight is going to be that much more ferocious and diligent and persevering. You fight for a country you love, and hopefully for one that loves you back. And that's part of the sad testimony of the Vietnam War is that we didn't love the men who came back like we should have. Battling between the ranks reduces the effectiveness of the church and its ability to stand firm together in the Lord just as we see conflict Destroyed that platoon in Vietnam in that movie. But in terms of facing conflicts without, we are to stand firm together for the gospel through the gospel. Because of what Jesus has done, because of who Jesus is and everything he's given us, we're able to stand firm together for the gospel through the gospel. But what about that conflict within? You see, Paul didn't just stop there. Fortunately or unfortunately, Paul continued. Now, imagine for a moment being Eudea you, you, uh, or syntiki, and sitting in that church when your name is read. How did he hear about that? But Paul had heard about that. Paul begins to address the conflict within the ranks, the conflict that shouldn't be. The other day I was driving down Old Father and I saw a woman, and I could see a leash, and there was one dog attacking another dog. And she was trying to separate these two dogs and not getting anywhere with this. So I pulled over and went to help her out. And in the course of uh, me grabbing and pulling one dog and somehow talking with this woman, oh, what I ascertained, well, what I initially thought it was, was a stray dog who had decided to attack her dog. But what I found out it was, they're both her dogs. <laughs> and one has the other by the throat. That's kind of what Paul's talking about here. Something that makes no sense something that's dangerous. And so he says, I entreat Eudea and I entreat Syntyche. He's serious. He repeats the verbs. Okay? Uh, Your translation accurately reflects his repetition. He addresses both of them, not one of them. And I think that's an important thing that he does there. They both are intended to work for a resolution, about a resolution that apparently, at least when he wrote the letter, they hadn't found yet. And yet it was serious enough that Paul had heard about it from the person who had last visited Philippi or who had last brought him a letter from Philippi. We're not sure exactly what it is, but he heard about it it had to have been sort of a more long-standing sort of conflict between these two women. The fact that he entreats both of them indicates that we have no grounds to wait for the other person to make the first move. Too often that happens in families. One person waits for the other to cross the divide. And what Paul is basically saying is you're supposed to be meeting in the middle because you've both been moved out of your bitterness toward the other person to make things right. In other words, the recognition that peace depends on both of you, not simply one of you. That's part of why Paul says in Romans 12, If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. There's a recognition that some of it depends on you, but not all of it depends on you. It takes two people to work it out. Whatever the out might be, so to speak. But what I also want us to remember as we look at this, that both Eudea and Syntyche are... Women. Women matter in the church. Okay, some of you might have thought, is Steve going to say that women like to fight? That's not what I was going to say. (laughs) That's not even close to what I was going to say. But the fact that these two women were fighting was so significant that Paul addressed it in a letter from prison in Rome. They were that important to him, that conflict was that important to him, that he identified them by name in a letter that we now have in the Scriptures. Not to shame us or to shame them, but rather for our example that we might learn. this conflict had likely affected the whole church, which is why Paul felt the need to mention this. I'm not sure if people were taking sides, but they all seem to have known about it, so it's not like Paul is uh, revealing something that was secret, okay, and confidential. He's speaking about it. What's interesting is not just that uh, he treats both of them individually, but that they had been Paul's gospel partners, that they had labored side by side with him in the gospel. They had labored with him and other co-workers in the gospel. They were his gospel partners, which means that they were also one another's gospel partners. And now... They're in trouble. Not only they, they were not only were they gospel partners, but we see that they're also citizens of heaven. They're people whose names are in the book of life. Paul is, is not saying that because of this fight they're no longer—they should no longer be concern, uh, considered Christians. But he's considering these are Christians who are fighting. These are people for whom Christ died. They're fighting. These are people whom Christ loves that are fighting. With one another. This indicates, of course, that cr- committed Christians can be and often are in the midst of conflict with one another. It should not surprise us when this happens. We see, or we read of it in Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas, gospel partners, first missionary journey together, and they can't go on the second one together because they're having a sharp disagreement over Mark, a disagreement that apparently wasn't resolved sufficiently because Scripture speaks about their sharp disagreements, and it doesn't necessarily say they worked out a good compromise, although it ended up being a good compromise, but we know that Paul and Barnabas, uh, Paul and Mark, were reconciled. But oh, there's sort of that question of where, whether or not Paul and Barnabas were ever reconciled, whether they ever sat in a room together and gave each other a big hug, said, "Dude, I was a jerk." We don't know. But it's not just conflicts in the church, but we also see in Scripture conflicts within family. The, the incident with Cain and Abel is not unique. There are other siblings who had it out for each other, who you know sold this, the brother into slavery, uh, who killed their other brother like Absalom killed his brother. But we see that Cain and Abel, the first two siblings, Cain killed his brother. Because not so much they had a disagreement but that Cain had a disagreement with God and didn't master the sin that sought to destroy him and was and ended up destroying his brother. Not just Paul and Barnabas, but for instance in my devotional reading this week I, I wrapped up the gospel of Luke and there in Luke twenty two I was astounded because you've got I've got In my Bible at home, and most of you probably have, uh, there's a there's a heading between verses 23 and 24, and it breaks up the account. And part of me is going, "Damn crazy people! Why do they do this?" Here it is, in the midst of the Last Supper, and first Jesus declares that there is one who's going to betray him. And so, what do the disciples do? They begin to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. They disputed with one another, is how it is sometimes translated, uh, like in the Christian Standard uh, Bible. They disputed, argued against uh, with one another about who would be during the supper. And so it probably wasn't as sometimes it's characterized, is it, good? Is it you? It's probably more like it's you, isn't it? Ain't me, gotta be you. In the very next verse, and a dispute also rose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. The two polar opposites, the betrayer and the greatest, and they're fighting about both in the presence of Jesus. At Passover that's us folks that is what we do unfortunately that is not a strange thing but it is an all-too-common thing this should remind us that we are not immune to conflict That everyone in this room is an ever present danger to the peace of this congregation. No one is exempt from that. And the moment you start thinking you are, you become the most dangerous person. We should put your your face up on the most wanted list right there. Watch out for that guy. Because he's the one who's going to destroy the congregation because he thinks he can't. We're all capable. Because we're all sinners. It's important for us to understand conflict. We often don't. We experience it, and it seems overwhelming to us in many ways. And one of the things that's in that book, Resolving Everyday Conflicts, that we have as a giveaway book if you don't have a copy, go get a copy. Uh, it's our gift to you. It breaks it up into the what, the how, and the why of conflict, the material causes of conflict, the personal realities of conflict is the how it's taking, taking place. And then, the, then there's the desire or the why of conflict. Why in the world are we fighting about this in the first place? And so, you know, what are you fighting about? And a lot of churches, for instance, fight about music. I'll just throw that one out there because it's fun, right? So... You might have two people fighting about music within the church, one who loves the hymns and one who doesn't. Maybe they're an exclusive psalm singer, or maybe they want, you know, contemporary stuff. Doesn't matter. That's the what. The how is where it gets personal, where one person calls another a liberal why don't you you don't sing the psalms alone you must be a liberal or you sing those newfangled songs that haven't stood the test of time yet you you liberal or you i might be even you might even be a heretic that's the damage that is done because you're arguing your point it's It's how it takes place, the accusations that are made the names that are called, those sorts of things. But underneath all of that, sort of like on the iceberg under the water, is the why, the desire. Why are you fighting about church music? And some of those might be good reasons, your biblical convictions. But sometimes it is your preference posing as a biblical conviction. Sometimes you've got an idol problem. Uh, that is playing out in the midst of that battle. And so until you really get to that, you're really not going to resolve all of the other stuff. And sometimes it's really hard to get to that. We have the quote at the beginning of your order of worship from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer about the the one who has the ideal church in his mind the dreamer so to speak and really that causes a lot of conflict the the idealism versus reality the way church you think should be versus the way it actually is and some people have a hard time with that and want instantaneous change Can't wait for it to unfold incrementally and battles take place. Sometimes it is that principle versus preference issue. Sometimes it's a question of methodology. But it all usually boils back down to guilt and pride. As Sinclair Ferguson notes, As we have seen, the secret of unity is humility. Its corollary is that the chief cause of division is pride. He's reflecting what we see, in a sense, in James 4. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Desires run rampant, leading to dangerous conflict. in families... In neighborhoods, in workplaces, and in the body of Christ. And so he says to Eudea and Syntiki agree in the Lord. Be of the same mind in the Lord. Focus upon the agreements that you have and work to the place where you are in agreement with one another. We are intended to agree on the need and the means for people to be made right with Christ. In other words, we are to be in agreement on Christ's work for us and our need for it. We are to be in in agreement on the need and means of holiness for those who struggle with sin, which is every Christian. In other words, we're also to be in agreement on the need for Christ's work within us, that sanctification thing. We also need to agree on the need for mission and service by those who believe in Christ. We we, we are to be of one mind on the reality of Christ's work through us, even though he may work through us differently. And sometimes that's the problem that we think he should work through us the same way he works through everyone else. Or conversely, because he works in my life this way, and and this is the way I do evangelism, therefore everyone else must do evangelism the same way. No, he gave different gifts to different people so that they're able to do the same sort of thing, but in a different way to different people. And so in terms of facing conflicts within, uh, we are to be like-minded in the Lord and put an end to the conflict. But this is not left in their hands alone. Because Paul continues, I ask you, true companion, help these women. There have been a lot of useless pages written about who the true companion is. There have been all kinds of crazy theories, including the one that this was Paul's wife. Not sure where she came from. When Paul has been in prison, since he wrote, pretty much most of the time since he wrote 1 Corinthians, when he talked about how everyone else should be like him, which was celibate, unmarried. Um and Calvin does a good job of uh, kind of refuting that particular viewpoint. But what's important is that not only were they to work, to work toward becoming of the same mind, but they, he was also calling out a person to work with them to help that happen. You see, here's one of the realities of conflict. Conflict makes you stupid. Conflict makes even the most mature Christian clueless. If you're one of the people going through the relational wisdom uh, curriculum with us and community group, that should not be a surprise to you. It's called hijacking. Okay? That's just a term uh, for a biochemistry thing in your head. Okay? Because the the sensory information you get before it gets to your frontal lobe where you make rational decisions goes through another part of your brain which deals with emotional responses. And so in the midst of conflict, your emotions are going crazy and you're not thinking straight. That's why we find people like we had in Florida this past weekend picking up a gun at a hospital Uh, and shooting someone that they live with. Because they're not thinking straight in the midst of the conflict. And you might think of yourself as an incredibly rational person, but in the midst of conflict, just like right before you take a test, you're not in your right mind. And therefore, someone else needs to come along and help you. I was speaking with one of our uh, pastors, Mark Lauterbach, who does uh, reconciliation for churches and groups. And um, he had just gotten off the phone with with someone from a different church uh, that he had been working with. And he said, this is what I hear all the time. How could we be so clueless? That's what happens in conflict. You get hijacked And you don't think right, and you don't see right, and you can't work it out because you're stuck in the middle of it. Another translation for this uh, true companion is yoke fellow, which is interesting because what does a yoke do? But a yoke often is used to help two animals to pull in the same direction. And so this guy is intended to help these two women to pull in the same direction because right now they're trying to go in different directions. Conflicts that drag on often need an outsider to help those who are within the conflict to work together. And that's true not just in churches like we see in the original context here, but it's true sometimes. That's why a lot of people go to couples therapy because they realize that there is a problem that the two of them can't work out and they need some help. Or they might just call their pastor or they might just call a faithful friend who's a little more uh, objective about these things. This person was not to take sides, recognizing that that is a temptation that we all face, but this person was intended to help them work it out. And so what, one of the things we can glean from this is that while confidentiality can matter, Paul is intruding not not to get good tidbits for the gossip page, but intruding, meddling. If some that's not really what's happening here, but some might consider that, so that this can be worked out. They're coming alongside, and there are times when that that seems like a breach of confident, confidentiality. It seems like a, a a breach of the you know the the, the vacuum that you want to keep this conflict contained in, but sometimes you need someone to enter into that. And that's really just a gospel thing, isn't it? How how did Jesus reconcile us to God? Was it by just flicking a switch up in heaven? No. He tabernacled among us. He became flesh and bone. became human and therefore was able to reconcile us as that one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, as Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And so sometimes it's only by entering into the area of the conflict uh, that the work of Christ can be applied to the problem that's taking place. This conflict was well known in the community, well enough that Paul knew about it, so conflict doesn't necessarily need to be contained, but it does need to be resolved. Most church splits are not about doctrine. Denominational splits are usually about doctrine. But church splits are usually about personal conflicts gone out of control whether it's the color of the carpet or whether or not to do EE or (laughs) you can go on and on. People take sides in personal conflicts and it goes wonky. One of our churches in Phoenix had a situation where church officer led a small group Church officer getting discontent with the leadership of the pastor. Church officer beginning to spread that within the group. And so that small group became a magnet for all the discontented people who were trying to work to get the pastor removed, not for sin, but just they thought he should be doing it better. And it almost blew the church up. This happens. Let us not think we're PCA. That doesn't happen to us. We're sinners too. The stew of, of the what and the how and the why can, can be sorted out by this true companion, this, this, this yoke fellow, so that a principled compromise can begin to take place so that they are thinking together. They are of one mind. The gospel unity and peace are only restored by repentance and reconciliation, and that ultimately is only a result of Christ and him crucified and raised for sinners. So facing conflict within also means that we are to graciously help those in conflict to repent and reconcile with one another. go back to platoon for a second. The conflict within the platoon reaches a crescendo after there's a massacre in a village and disagreement about all of that. It's resolved when Sergeant Barnes takes a page from King David's book and pulls back the rest of the platoon, leaving Sergeant Elias alone alone and surrounded by the Viet Cong so that he'll die. That, of course, is not what the gospel calls us to do. We're called to stand together against the common enemy, and we're also called to work together toward being of one mind to end conflict that keeps gospel partners from the actual gospel mission that repentance and reconciliation are the process that God's people need to follow when conflict rages so that we can begin to engage the real enemy together, not the brother that we're trying to kill. Let's pray. Father, part of me wonders what Paul felt When he wrote those words, if there were tear stains on that page or if he had someone write it for him, if his his garment was covered in tears, because we know of his great love for those people, He he had gushed about that and surely it tore him to pieces to watch these two women that had served with him fighting. Father, help us to remember that when we're tempted to tear things up, when we're tempted to demand our way. I ask that you'd help us to remember the belovedness of the other person, the belovedness that you have for them. That you've given them. Help us to remember the common mission that we're, we have, even if we are different parts of that mission. Help us to be at peace so that we can be at work. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.